This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, welcome to our countdown to Canton on the Talk of Fame Network. This, of course, is the week Pro Football Hall of Fame announces its class of 2018. And because we're three of the 48 voters, we'll be right in the middle of things. In fact... Ron already is in the middle because he was part of the Patriots charter flight that got in Monday. They always make room for you, don't they, Ron? What is it, coach or freight? What is it? (laughs) (laughs) Right there. I was right down there with the luggage. There you go. Ron is in Minneapolis as we speak to tell us what we're in for. So, Ron, how cold is it? Well, I believe in global warming, but there's no evidence of that here. I got to tell you, man, this is like Iceberg Village. It was two degrees, uh, one degree when I woke up this morning. Uh, it won't be much about six by the end of the week, from what I've been told. So bring your long johnny. Well, if it's any solace to you, we had five inches of snow here today. Of course, wow. much to discuss to Bud Grant. Uh, this game's going to be played indoors at the Vikings' new stadium. But, Gooseman, can you imagine what it would be like if they played this at the old Met, you know, where Drew Pearson caught the Hail Mary? Because temperature game at, uh, at uh, the Viking Stadium, the new stadium Sunday, I think is supposed to be something like four to five degrees. You know, I, I covered the last game at the Met. That was back in 1981. I was on the Chiefs beat then. And they beat the Vikings that day. And, you know, the Vikings haven't been the same franchise since they moved indoors. You know, first the uh. Metrodome and now here. You know, I thought the cold gave them their edge and the Vikings conceded it when they moved indoors. And they've gotten soft, I think, over the years. You know, teams used to hate going playing in Minneapolis in December. Not anymore. And Bud well, Grant it's always warm personal. and sometimes hot in here with Rick and Ron. And today, guys, we have a subject of one of the hottest topics of this year's Hall of Fame class. Former linebacker Brian Urlacher. He's the first-time finalist, along with last week's guest, Ray Lewis, of course. And the question is, Brian or Ray or both? We won't have long to find out. We're also going to hear from former wide receiver Isaac Bruce, who's a Hall of Fame finalist, in a rebroadcast of last month's interview, as well as Hall of Fame GM Ron Wolf and former coach Eric Mangini. But first, Ron, what should we pack for this weekend? Well, I would suggest you guys bring three key things. Uh, thick underwear, heavy gloves, and a furry, furry cap. <laughs> Good news, Goose. We don't have to walk anywhere for the Hall of Fame voting. It's in the hotel where we're staying. And more good news. We're going to dive into the class of 2018 after we go to break. So stay where you are. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, I see where Tom Brady made news again this week, and not because the stitches were removed from his right hand or anything that he said at one of those uh, media sessions, but because of his interview, I think it was on Monday on WEI Radio in Boston, uh, he, he cut short that normal morning interview with the Boston station because another broadcaster, and maybe, Ron, you know who it was, um, I think some 20-something guy anyway, he criticized Brady's five-year-old daughter. (laughs) Um, Smart. What a genius move. So Brady said he wasn't interested in talking and he'd evaluate whether he wanted to continue working with the show. And you know what I say? Hallelujah. I mean, good for him. You, You know... Ron, you can appreciate this. You've got a son. I mean, you can criticize the Patriots or Brady or Belichick or whatever. I don't care. Uh, but when you start poking sticks at kids, I mean, you've got to be kidding me. Um, it just reminds yeah. me of Animal House, you know? Your dead is what? Who? Niedermeyer. Warmer. Dead. Marmalade. Dead. Niedermeyer. Dead. So it's this guy. This Nimrod, you know, he was suspended, I guess, this, this week, Ron, and he should be. Um, I'm just wondering, you know, if, if it were up to you, 
What punishment would you have given this guy? If you were running that radio station, what punishment would you have given him for ripping Brady's daughter? Well, I'll tell you honestly, uh, the guy's name is the young kid, 23 years old, his name's Alex uh, Reamer, and uh, I wouldn't have given him any punishment. I would have suspended the nitwits who gave a 23-year-old kid a talk radio hosting slot. Yeah, uh, yeah. Blaming him is like blaming my son Jack by giving the keys to my car, and he crashes it into a stone wall, and I sue the guy who built the wall. I mean, that kid is as qualified to be hosting a radio show at anything but a college radio station as I am a playing quarterback for the Patriots. Maybe less, though, actually. I mean, it was, it was crazy. I mean, and to Brady's credit, he came out uh, on you know, Tuesday and said uh, he didn't want to see the guys fired. He didn't think that, right. uh, you know, we all make mistakes, and, you know, which was very magnanimous of him. Yeah. Um, yeah. But he is rethinking his position, and if I was him, I don't think I'd be on the station anymore. Well, Goose, I mean, if you were him, you really can't go back, can you? I mean, what would you do? No, it's not like Tom needs money. You know, this would be an opportune time for him to exit stage left. Yeah, well, anyway, Tom Brady, we are with you. Remember that I said, we, and that includes Ron, we, Ron, yes, <laughs> the guy who flew freight on Monday with you on the charter. <laughs> okay. Oh, you're heavy down kidding. there. You're not <laughs> <laughs> well, at least you get used to carrying them, because when Goose and I arrive, you can carry ours, all right? And <laughs> carrying okay. you guys for how many years now? 40? <laughs> <laughs> At least. Uh, on to our countdown to Canton. There are a lot of people out there who don't know what happens when we go into that room this Saturday. Maybe they're relieved. They don't know. But we start at 7 a.m. Um, and there really are a lot of listeners out there, Goose, who have opinions on what happens when we leave that room, not when we go in. So, Goose, if you can, just take them through the day. When those doors shut, take them through what happens inside that room. Yeah, we'll gather at 6.30 in the morning, have breakfast, and start the meeting at 7. Then we'll discuss individually the two senior candidates and the one contributor. Then we'll vote on them. There are 48 voters, and a candidate needs a minimum of 39 votes for election. Then we'll discuss individually the 15 modern-era candidates, and it will be by position group. Some of the discussions may go five minutes. Some may go 60. Then we'll vote that slate of 15 down to 10. Then we'll have a second vote, reduce the slate of 10 to to 5. Then those five, and only those five, will be subject to a yes-no vote for election. About nine hours after first sitting down, our business will be done. We'll walk out of that room, but the vote is secret. The electors won't even know which of the eight candidates received enough yes votes for the class. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because, Ron, you can tell them how the votes are tabulated. I mean, we, we submit those votes, but we have no idea what happens after that. No, that's right. We Each of us hands our votes to a small army of men and women in identical black dark suits, white shirts, and dark dyes from Deloitte and Touche. They, uh, yeah. they count and take the ballots. And it takes them like 25 minutes to count them, so you do sort of wonder if you want them to do their tax- your taxes or not. But they do eventually come <laughs> back with the, with the results, and they, as Drew said, we, okay, here's your tent. But when uh, we after we make that final vote, we have no more idea than anybody else who uh, who's going to win. We walk out of that room, and there's usually people saying, oh, "Who's going in?" And we have no idea. And they look at us like, uh, "You guys don't know what you're doing." Which, in some cases, maybe we don't, but in most cases, we do. <laughs> hey, Goose. Before we get to this year's candidates, do you have any um, favorite stories about what happens behind those closed doors? I mean, in the past, do you have any favorite stories or anecdotes yeah, you can relate? I've presented 16 candidates over the years, and my shortest presentation was for Emmett Smith. I got up and said, Emmett Smith has carried the ball more times for more yards and more touchdowns than any player in NFL history. Any questions? There were none. Walter Payton, <laughs> right? Walter Payton Jerry Rice, Joe Montana, Brett Favre, there have been a handful of those, of those very short presentations. Those are my favorite presentations, by the way. The shorter presentation, the shorter our day. I'm with you on that. How about you, Ron? Uh, my favorite was uh, uh, 
went out for an hour of coffee and got up to make the case for Warren Sapp, who he knew was a quite controversial uh, candidate because, you know, he probably had run-ins with just about everybody in the room at one point in time. And he knew he had to defuse that. So his opening statement was, look, no one in this room had more problems than Warren Sapp than I did because I covered the bucks. Six days a week, he was a horse's ass. And the seventh day a week, he was a Hall of Famer. <laughs> it was right. perfect because after that, he said, yeah, he's right. <laughs> he just completely diffused the whole thing. It was, it was really well done. It was so good that he became a first ballot choice. <laughs> Warren right. Uh, well, Mine might have been last year when someone, you guys remember this, started knocking Morton Anderson and Ron, yes, our Ron Borges, you were sitting next to Goose me. I remember you grabbed the mic and you said, hey, listen, why don't we just admit what you're implying, okay? That we will never, ever consider punters or kickers for the Hall of Fame, okay? Because that's what you're telling me. And the guy's, well, no, no, no. You said, oh, wait a minute. You have a two-time All-Decade performer, the most qualified guy in this room, and you want to knock him because why? Why? Because he's a kicker, then let's just be honest and say we'll never vote one in. <laughs> All that was left of that was debris after that. Hey, Ron, you cover the fights. I think that's what you call a TKO. <laughs> yeah, well, you guys know I get peeved once. Yeah, it's like a, a, one, a stretch in every meeting where I get a little peeved and lose my mind. But uh, I always believe the truth will set you free. Uh, yeah. And sometimes it'll put you in the Hall of Fame, too. And I, I hope maybe that helped a little bit. Okay, well, now three of us have presentations this weekend. Ron's presenting Ty Law. Goose, you have Everson Walls and Jerry Kramer, and I have Bobby Beathard. So let's start with Ty Law. Ron, what do you plan to highlight, and what do you think his chances are? I think his chances are very good. You know, he reached the final 10 last year. Uh, I really thought he had a really strong chance to make it. And uh, usually, if you get to the final 10, eventually you get in. Uh, I think what's important uh, is reminding you the voters in the room, especially some of the younger voters, that those first three Patriots Super Bowl teams, the Law, uh, anchored were defensive teams, not offensive teams. They won with defense, and they won because they had playmakers on defense, and there was no greater playmaker on that team than, than Ty Law. And I'll also point out that if you think Deion Sanders was one of the great DBs ever, and you all want to wrap your arms around Champ Bailey in a year from now, well, consider this. Ty Law has the same numbers as, uh, as both of them, except for two things. You have more championship rings, and you made more tackles than both of them combined. So you don't want to put it in? Don't put those other guys in either. Goose, man, you've got uh, Kramer and Walls, as I said. Um, I suspect, suspect Everson Walls is probably the tougher sell. Um, a, how do you get him through this in his first year as a finalist, and, and really his last year as a modernering candidate? And, and B, how do you get Kramer through a board that I think 10 previous time has rejected him, including once as a senior candidate? Yeah, first of all, so he's done things no cornerback has ever done before or since. He intercepted 11 passes as a rookie in 1981. No player has intercepted 11 passes in a single season in the 36 years since then. He's also the only cornerback in history to lead the NFL in interceptions three times. He's fifth all-time among pure corners in interceptions. If the Hall of Fame is about production, Walls should be a slam dunk. As far as Kramer goes, no one in the room has seen him play live. A few of us saw him play on television, myself and Ron included, and I'm going to ask the voters to judge Kramer through the eyes of the men who did see him play. The Hall of Fame Selection Committee... Um, of 1969 that voted him the greatest guard in the first half century of football. Trust the work this committee uh, has done and trust the work that that committee did. And I, I just, we're bringing him back a second time. I feel strongly about him. 
Yeah, so do I. And good luck there, Goose. I think he does belong. Um, I've got the contributor nominee, as I said, and it might be the easiest one of all. I mean, that's former GM Bobby Bethard, who was part of four Super Bowl teams. It would be the Chiefs, Dolphins, Redskins, and San Diego. And who did to me, for what the Redskins and Chargers did, uh, what Ron Wolf, I'm sorry, our Hall of Famer, and who's coming up, uh, did for Green Bay, and Hall of Famer Bill Pauling did for the Colts and Bills. And that's namely put them back on the map. I mean, the only hiccup is the Ryan Leaf draft, but, you know, hey, people make mistakes. And if you're going to hold a draft pick against a GM, then we can eliminate all of them from the field. Because as one GM told me, you know what? If you ain't missing a guy, you ain't trying. And you know what? We are trying. We're trying to go to a commercial, and we're going to go to one right now. So we'll see you on the other side. Yep, we're going to see you on the other side with Ron Wolf. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, with this being Countdown to Canton Week, we thought we'd check in with one of the greatest talent evaluators in the history of the game. And you know what? It's someone I presented three years ago to the Board of Selectors in really one of the easiest jobs ever conceived, and that's Hall of Fame GM Ron Wolf. Ron, thanks so much for joining us. Well, it's an honor for me to be a part of your program. Thank you very much. Honor for us to have you on. First things first, we have a Green Bay Packer among this year's candidates, and that's senior nominee Jerry Kramer, as you know. As someone who rebuilt the Packers franchise, it, it must make you happy to see a guy from those great teams, and I know there are already, I think, 11 players in the Hall of Fame from those uh, 60s teams, but to see someone from those teams deserving who's now up for Canton in 2018. Well, certainly, uh, I mean, he's been recognized through the years uh, as one of the top guards uh, in the history of the game. And here, finally, uh, he's going to get his due, hopefully. I assume it all depends on how the voting process goes. Uh, but And I don't envy those people in the room that have to do that either. I mean, it's got to be a tough, tough job. But certainly, he's more than qualified. So it's, you're right, it's nice to see a player of that caliber and person of that caliber have a chance to wear the gold jacket. Ron, I know you've watched a lot of tape of, of all the Packer teams in history. Was the Lombardi sweep a joy to watch as a, as a football guy? You know, it really was, but it, it goes back. I mean, it really, uh, Lombardi learned a lot of his football from Earl Blake at Army. So, we had the old tapes up in our room there of Army football and watching their sweeps and all that stuff, which was really, you know, it became the Packers sweep. With, with the exception of three backs across, they had two and two wide receivers. But it's the same thing. Yeah, it was it was well executed. Uh, now they they played at a time where they controlled the players, so it was a an easy transition for them. You either did what they wanted done, well, I guess what he wanted done, or you were on the road. But it, it's a pleasure to watch that. Well, to get uh, switch gears here, Ron, to the sort of modern uh, situation, last year the board put in uh, Terrell Davis, uh, who really only had three what I would call Hall of Fame-worthy seasons after you know before injuries cut him down. Uh do you see any sort of long-term danger to that? You know, Tony Baselli's on this year, and he played 90 games or so in the NFL. Uh, 
as a Hall of Famer yourself, do you see any sort of long-term possible problems going out of that? Well, I think I could really get on the fence here, but, uh, yeah, I do see a problem with that because there's so many people uh, that, that, that now can be brought into the mix. And I'm not sure there, there are players, Ron, so far back that are certainly deserving of being in, in the Hall of Fame. And, I mean, we, we, we could go on and on with naming, naming names, but, but now that you've narrowed it down to three years, you have put people like Glenn Dobbs, who, who was sensational in, in his era at what he did, uh, Bobby Dillon. You could go on and on. We could name names, Otto Schnellenbacher, so many names we could mention here. So to me, that, that's, that's the danger of that. Uh, that's just my opinion. Yeah, do you yeah, think guy, that that really should be a, 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 a stronger factor? I've always sort of felt that, I mean, full disclosure, I didn't vote for TD, even though he is a great player and a wonderful guy. He was unlucky, but uh, I didn't vote for him because I felt that part of greatness is being able to survive uh, at a high level for a long period of time. Most people can't do it. Uh, do you right. I always, thought, I always thought the definition of a Hall of Fame player was a, a person who dominated uh, at his position in his era. So what's an era? You know, is that you can take that any any way you want to take that, but mm-hmm. uh, three years to me is not an era. But it also doesn't eliminate the the, the great years that Terrell Davis had. Right. I mean, he was a phenomenal player in those three years. So it, it's a tough, tough question to answer. Well, as Ron likes to say, it, it's not so much about ability as is it is about availability. It's both. There you go. So, Makes yeah, sense. So, yeah. So yeah, and, and I think you're right, right on with that. Anyway, we're speaking with Hall of Fame GM Ron Wolf on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at at talkoffamenet. And Ron, as you know, because I've talked to you before, I'm presenting former GM Bobby Bethard as a contributor candidate. And in many respects, um, I see him a lot like you and Bill Polian, and you guys were the first two contributor inductees. He rebuilt a franchise. In fact, he rebuilt two. He won Super Bowls, and he knew where to find players. I mean, whether it was in, on another team or in the college ranks or just an undrafted free agent, he knew where to find him. What, in your mind, made Bobby Bethard special? I think, he, I think his record made him special, what he was able to accomplish. And his devotion to the game, his devotion to his ideal, what it takes to play the game, and he went and did it. I mean, he did it, you know, that, that Frank Sinatra song, he did it his way. <laughs> and uh, that, isn't, that isn't exactly the lyric, but it was my way, but you get what I'm saying. So I, do. You know, I have a great deal of respect for him. I admire him for what he accomplished, and uh, it's nice to have someone like that be presented. And hopefully, again, he'll get to wear that gold jacket. You know, Ron, or, um, Ron Borges had just mentioned the short career of Terrell Davis to Kenny Easley. Let me ask you this. It's going to be a tough call this year with Moss and Owens. How would you compare a short career guy, Sterling Sharp, to those two? Well, to those two guys? Yes. Let me just say this. 
Uh, and this is, I mean, Terrell Davis got three years. Sterling Sharp had six years. Those six years of Sterling Sharp, I am sure the defensive coordinators, when they watched the tape of the Green Bay Packers, said all we have to do is take Sharp away and we can beat them. You know, and they were right. But they never took him away. He was a phenomenal player, pass receiver, competitor. One tough guy. He would yell and scream at the other guys on the other team. They they could not contain him. And to me, that's that's his greatness. You all you have to do is look at his records. You know, he came out with Irvin and Brown and Sharp. Okay, and I was involved with Brown at, or Tim Brown at with the Oakland Raiders. But uh, after after having seen, having had an opportunity to witness what uh, Sterling Sharp was all about. I mean, he's a consummate football player. And uh, I I think he certainly deserves to be in the Hall of Fame. And, And again, here we go. Everybody's got a guy. But here was a guy playing on a just above average football team, doing things that were incredible on the football field. I agree. Yeah, no, you're right. We've, we've sort of argued his case in, in the past. His numbers were unbelievable. I mean, he was he was on track to, you know, if he kept going, he was on track to put up numbers just like Jerry Rice. And then, of course, he got the terrible injuries. Yeah, and, and, and yeah no, no, you're absolutely correct. I mean, he... He he was just a he was just a remarkable. You get around guys, so many guys during the course of your career in the National Football or one's career in the National Football League, but this this was a special football player, and uh, he 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 was the offense for the Green Bay Packers. When, when, certainly when I got there, ninety two ninety three. We had Brett Favre. He had somebody to throw to, and it couldn't be a better guy to throw to than Sterling Sharp. But uh, he he was he was a remarkable player. Interesting. Hey, Ron. Well, speaking of what uh, you had, oh, oh, go, go ahead, Ronnie. Oh, okay. We're speaking with Hall of Fame GM Ron Wolf on, on the Talk of Fame Network, and and Ron, sorry to cut you off, but Ron, we get confused here because we got Ron Borges, Ron Wolf, or Ron, Ron. Anyway, um, Ron uh, Wolf, <laughs> question for you. If you were to choose the five modern era candidates today, the, the guys who are up this weekend, I, I assume you'd start with Ray Lewis, but maybe not. But but would you and work down from there? And if you could, could you give us the other four guys that you might choose? Well, certainly, yeah, Ray Lewis would be uh... – now, this is certainly uh, my opinion here. Ray Lewis sure. would be one. Randy Moss would be two. Brian Dawkins would be three. Brian Erlacher would be four. And now I'm in trouble because there are so many qualified guys after that. My way, Hutchinson, Bruce, as an example. So I would pick Bruce, but... You know, if I was in a room with a group of guys trying to decide who they were, who they're going, who were going to be the five guys, I could be swayed. I could be swayed very easily because the Edwin James, all these other guys that are in this list, 
They're incredible. Incredible. Some of these guys were incredible players. Uh, no, I couldn't be, and uh, okay. 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 I could not be. Okay, Ron Wolf. No, so no one the in the room could sway me for him. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, you and I are on the same side there, yeah, <laughs> Ron. Yeah. Ron yeah. Wolf. Thanks so much for the time, and see you this summer in Canton. Thank you. Thanks, Ron. You bet. Thank you. That was Hall of Fame GM Ron Wolf. Up next, it's Hall of Fame finalist Brian Erlacher. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. There's been a lot of talk about the middle linebackers in this year's Hall of Fame class, mostly because both are deserving of Canton. Now, we had Ray Lewis with us last week, and today, well, today we have Brian Erlacher, who, like Ray Lewis, was a Defensive Player of the Year, multiple All-Pro choice, first-team All-Decade, and one of 15 finalists for the Hall's class of 2018. Hey, Brian, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. You got it. Um, let's start with a layup, Brian. I'll give you the easy one. Softball's coming. You're a finalist for the Hall in your first year of eligibility. Is this a big deal to you? Because we had Brett Favre on here a couple years ago, and he said really wasn't that much of a big deal to him. How about you? You know, it's exciting, and it's an honor to be just on the, on this list, the short list of players. But it's, you know, the only time people always ask me, how do you feel? I go, I don't really think about it, honestly, until people ask me about it. And I'm pretty excited for the process to be over. <laughs> Whether I get in or I don't get in, I, I just honestly tired of talking about it to everybody because everyone makes a big deal. If I don't sit around and ponder it and think about it, um, I was talking to Lance Briggs last week and it's not going to change what type of player I was. It's not going to change my, um, I mean, nothing's going to change about my career except for the fact that if I get in or don't get in, that's, that's really it. You know, my stats aren't going to change between now and uh, Saturday. Would you guys vote? <laughs> hey, Brian, when did you start thinking about the Hall of Fame? Was it during your playing days, after your playing days, or even before your NFL days? When? It had to be after, you know, because it wasn't really a thought in my mind when I played. You know, there's so much going on during the season. You know, I, that was the last thing I was thinking about during my career. Um, and then I, I probably about the last two or three years is when it started crossing my mind. People will start talking about it more and more. And that's probably actually the, the, the most I thought about it was the last couple of years. Well, uh, last week we had Kevin Milway on who uh, confronted you a few times during your playing days and also was, uh, yeah, he was, was, he was a pain in my rear end when I played against him. <laughs> well, apparently you were too because uh, yeah, apparently you were uh, we too. Asked yeah, we asked him, you know, uh, you or Ray Lewis, who did he think the better player was? And he said he felt that you were a much more physical player. And that Ray kind of ran around blocks and was protected by his linemen. But you took people on, and he thought you were the better uh, player, uh, the better middle linebacker. What do you think? Well, I think that's nice, very kind words. I think it's everyone feels differently about different players. <laughs> you know, he, he was definitely one of the best players I played against. He, he was so athletic. You know, I couldn't. He could get outside. He could also take you on and hold you like they all do. Um, <laughs> but I, I don't know. You know, Ray, Ray did some things well. I did some things well. We were different players. I played in two different systems. I think he did as well. I mean, if you can take one of the other, it doesn't really matter. You know, he, Ray, um, Ray has two rings. You know, I will say that. I wish I had just one. But uh, it's, uh, it's tough to compare because we were in different systems. But we both did a lot of things well. I will say that. We're speaking with Hall of Fame finalist Brian Erlacher on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. 
And Brian, uh, since we're talking about what other players said about you, no less an authority than Aaron Rodgers, who will be in Canton someday, said, quote, Brian Urlacher should be a first ballot Hall of Famer. What he did at middle linebacker revolutionized the game, unquote. You want to explain the second part of that? How did you revolutionize the game at middle linebacker? That's a good question. I mean, those are very high grades coming from the guy who I think is the best in the business right now. I mean, Aaron's a stud. He does everything well. He throws it great, obviously, runs it, never gets him in a bad play. But I think just the way I played pass defense, you know, when Lovey came in and changed our defense around and let us, it wasn't a traditional cover, too. I didn't run down the middle every play. There were times I had to run down the middle, but there's a lot of times I would, I would read the offense and got to kind of drop off of them. So it kind of gave me more freedom to be close to the line of scrimmage and do more things um, with my athletic ability. And also not with just me, but with Lance and Nick and Pisa, whoever was playing Sam linebacker, also gave them some freedom to do some things as well. You know, Brian, back in the, in the 90s and the 2000 decade, I spent a lot of time working on the draft. And I remember talking to you at the combine, and it really intrigued me that you were coming out as a safety. And, and I was intrigued by the prospect yep. of possibly keeping you at the safety position in the NFL because you would, you talk about revolutionizing position, a guy with your size and your speed at safety. How difficult was the transition for you to go to middle linebacker? You know, people talk about keeping me at safety. I think that would have been a mistake. <laughs> I just don't think I was fast enough. I, it would have been fun, don't get me wrong, but I just don't know if I can cover some of those slot receivers. The tight ends, I think I could have covered for sure. But um, the transition from, from free safety to middle linebacker was – it was hard at first, but just because the defense in the NFL, there's so much terminology and so much stuff you have to learn. And in college, I felt like our defense was simple. You know, I just I covered the half where I played for a year. I got in the box, so it was pretty simple. But just the uh, the intricacies of an NFL defense, there's so much to learn. Uh, that's what I had a hard time with at first. Uh, you know, we, the Hall of Fame is obviously about the best of the best, and, and this, there's always second orders, even in the Hall of Fame, from what, you know, Hall of Famers that I know tell me, you know, when they get in the room together, you know, they look at each other and say, who's the best in this room? Uh, so yeah. Your position, you know, middle linebacker, uh, and I will give you this caveat, you know, I grew up at a time when Dick, Dick Buckers was the guy, and uh, I was a kid yeah. in this position, and, and I wanted to be Dick Buckers, and so he'll always be the greatest in my eyes uh, of just like my dad thought Joe Wilson's the greatest heavyweight, and I thought it was Muhammad Ali. That's just sort of how it is. So who was your guy? As Who's the greatest middle linebacker, in, in your opinion? In my opinion right now, I mean, it, it's, it's going to be hard for me to, to take away from Dick Bucket just because i played for the Bears. I've, I've seen a lot of footage on him. But, man, this is I don't want to short myself when I say this, but Ray Lewis was pretty damn good for his there's a, there's a, I mean, for his longevity, as long as he played, you know, Dick only played for, what, 10, 11 years? You, you would know better than right. I would. I don't know the exact length of his career. You look how many years Ray, Ray played, and I will say this about myself, too. I feel like there was a period in there where I was also better than Ray. You know, there's five or six years there where we went head-to-head there, and our stats are very comparable. But uh, for the longevity that Ray played, I mean, he, he is right there with Dick Buckets, in my opinion. So, um it's just so hard to pick because of eras and players and people staying healthy. You know, Dick's health wasn't always that good. You know, at the end of his career, he could barely walk. So it's just hard to pick. Well, it's funny you say that because uh, Ray had no trouble picking his guy, Ray Lewis. <laughs> he did. <laughs> yeah, he did. He did. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, that's good. Some people feel that way about themselves. I, uh, I have a hard time saying that about myself, but, you know, it comes easy for some people. <laughs> I, I was going to say to you, full disclosure, we had Ray on last week and we asked him, he said, uh, you know, me, <laughs> I'm going to pick me. Um, but, uh, since, 
Since you mentioned Dick Butkus, Brian, I want to ask you, how difficult was it to move into that position, the middle linebacker position, in Chicago, where all middle linebackers associated not only with Dick Butkus, but with Mike Singletary, Singletary. both Hall of Famers. And Bill George as well. Uh, you and know, Bill George, yeah, you know, The media made a huge deal of it. When I, when I got there, it, it was a big deal because you know I started out with Sam Linebacker, which I was terrible, so I got replaced. <laughs> but you know, I moved <laughs> to Mike uh, like week two or three. But you know, I, I heard about the media talked about the tradition there so much, and I didn't grow up being a Bears fan, so it didn't mean that much to me until I got there. Then I, that changed real quick. But you know, I, there wasn't a lot of pressure for me because I felt like if I just went out there and did my job and, and ran to the football and played hard, I'd be fine. And it worked out pretty good for me. You know, it's just um, it's in my position, it's the most coveted position on defense in the NFL to play middle linebacker for the Chicago Bears. I mean, what you think of all the great linebackers we've had. And that's where you want to be. If you play middle linebacker, you want to be in that category. Brian, how did Lovey Smith and, and that staff make you a better player? Man, I attribute so much of my success to them. Um, don't get me wrong. Our coach, Coach Jerron, Coach Blosh, Coach Lindsey, my first staff was unbelievable as well. But I, I played longer for Coach Smith, and I got deeper into that system, if that makes sense. I understood the defense more. I knew exactly what I was doing, what everyone else was doing. And what they did was they made sure that I knew what everyone else was doing. You know, I, there was no stone unturned. I, every every snap, every guy on that defense knew exactly where to go. And it made playing defense easy because you weren't thinking, you were just playing. You know, I always say, I think when people start thinking on the football field, it's not good. It's not a good situation because it slows you down and you start playing a little slow. So I think if guys aren't thinking, they're just reacting, they're playing fast. And that's what we did in Chicago for all those years. We just played fast and reacted, and we got a ton of takeaways. Well, Brian, you know, I've talked to so many players over the years, and, and so many of them tell me that you know playing in the NFL is great, being a big college program is great, but there's really nothing like high school and being a, you know that high school football player on that high school. Yeah. So in your case, what was the bigger thrill, reaching the Super Bowl or leading Lovington High to a 14 and 0 season in the state championship? <laughs> Man, I love, you said it. high school football was the greatest. It was so much fun because I played with guys from seventh grade till we were seniors. It was the same class because we only had one high school where I grew up. So we stayed together all those years and went from being 0-6 in eighth grade, 2-5 and in ninth grade. And then my senior year, we were 14-0-1 So that was a pretty cool feat. You know, we all stuck together. Like I said, it was the same guys from seventh grade to my senior year, and we got better every year. Now, obviously playing football as an adult, it was pretty cool because you got paid to do it. So, you know, we were actually all a bunch of big kids is what we were in NFL at the Bears, at least. Just a bunch of guys having a good time and having fun out there. How much Brian, does, the pressure, does, does the pressures change, Brian, between those two things? I mean, there was a lot of pressure in high school. You're trying to, uh, you know, you're trying to play for the state. Yeah, That's a ton of pressure in high school. <laughs> but, you know, the pressure, I didn't feel different. You know, high school was, was a lot of fun. You had to worry about your girlfriend. You had to do your homework. You know, that stuff's really stressful back then. You thought it was tough back then, but you get to the NFL, and you're expected to win. You're expected to do certain things. So it's a little different when you're expected to win and expected to perform at a certain level every day. Hey, Brian, and, and we're speaking with Hall of Fame linebacker, Hall of Fame actually linebacker finalist Brian Urlacher on the top. Nominee, the there you go. Yeah, nominee, <laughs> it's right. And um, I'm gonna, I started this segment by saying um, – you know, I'm going to throw you the softball and give you the easy one. Now I'm going to throw the hard one high and inside on you. Oof. 
Okay. I know you. I know you don't like to tout yourself, but if you were to stand in front of us today, all the voters, forty-eight, and make your case—not versus anyone else, but only for yourself—tell yeah. us why you belong in Canada. What What would you tell us? Oh my gosh, that is a hard question. Um, that's why I have Dan Pompey. <laughs> you got a good one. You got a good one. Good man. You know, I got. I was telling someone that I said, if it comes down to my presenter, I'm in. Because <laughs> Dan does a great job. You know, he'll tell you everything you want to know, but. I, I, I'm not a huge stat guy. I've never been a huge stat guy, but my stats are pretty damn good. <laughs> you know, you look at my stats and you compare them at certain times to, to other guys' stats in my um, era, I guess. They add up pretty well, and they're not better than most of them. Um, I feel like I was a pretty good teammate. I don't know if that really matters in the voting process, but I feel like I was a pretty good teammate my uh, my whole career. You know, I tried to get to know everybody in that locker room from the rookie free agents to the guys who were, you know, the, the high-paid free agents. So I felt like I was pretty good to everybody. Um, never had any issues with my coaches. Uh, I don't know, man. I don't really know what, what the criteria is besides stats to uh, to get over that hump. Brian, Hall of Fame ring or Super Bowl ring? Super Bowl. Yeah. Why? Yeah. You know, and, and I, that's a good question. I had this discussion the other day with uh, with my wife, and she said that, would you rather have a Hall of Fame or be a Super Bowl? I said, I really want a Super Bowl. She goes, a lot of guys win Super Bowls who don't really play. And they have rings. I go, that's a pretty good point. <laughs> she goes, the Hall of Fame is a pretty elite class, and I, I do agree with that. Well, when you think about it, though, I mean, you mentioned that you know you don't sit around thinking about it all day long, but uh, I've, I've seen a lot of guys. Yeah, I just heard a lot of guys say that, Brian. And then, but then when the moment comes and they're in and they're on that yeah. stage, and all those great players are standing behind them, and there's only one percent of the guys who ever played in the Hall of Fame, it seems to hit them the enormity of it all. Uh, do you think I agree. likely to happen? I don't know. Well, my wife hit me with it the other day. I was like, oh, you're right. So, you know, she, she kind of flipped my thinking real quick in about two seconds, which she does all the time. But um, I don't know. I, I mean, I hope I get a chance to find out this year. Um, you know, I've been around a bunch of guys who, who are in the Hall of Fame and have made the Hall of Fame. So um, it's cool. You know, it's a, it's a very elite class of football players uh, in, in that category, that's for sure. Brian Locker, thanks so much for the time. Best of luck with your Hall of Fame yeah. candidacy. And we'll see you in Minneapolis. We'll see you this weekend. All right. Yes, we will. Thanks for having me on, guys. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. You got it. Thanks, Brian. That was Hall of Fame finalist Brian Urlacher. Up next, two-minute drill. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Okay, Ronnie, you're in Minneapolis. Would you do me a favor? Get Tony Corrente to blow that whistle. <laughs> Yep, that means it's time for a two-minute drill, so let's get started. Guys, finish the sentence. It's colder in Minneapolis this week than... It was last week. ...than any other civilized place on Earth. (laughs) When will the NFL return to a cold-weather city? When Reykjavik gets a team. Hopefully when hell freezes over. Who are the Viking fans cheering for in the Super Bowl? Thor. Well, I've run into several wearing Patriots jerseys because they claim they were treated so badly by Eagles fans. They're pulling for Brady. Nine top seeds have reached the last five Super Bowls. So remind me again, why does the NFL need conference playoffs? Easy goes. Money. Exactly. Or as some would say, Monet. It's all about the cash. <laughs> Bill Belichick wore his father Steve's fedora upon his revival, revival, uh, arrival to Minneapolis. If you wore your father's hat upon arrival, what kind of hat would that be? It'd be a Red Sox hat, which means I'd never wear it. It would be a hard hat with plaid ear flaps that fold it down. <laughs> the Patriots are four and a half point favorites in the Super Bowl. What would the betting line be if Carson Wentz was taking a snap for the Eagles? Patriots by four and a half. 
win half because the Patriots usually win these games by a field goal. They just win. If Philadelphia wins the Super Bowl, will hometown boy and Eagles owner Jeff Lurie be banned in Boston? If his team beat the Red Sox, maybe. I would say no because these days he only goes to Martha's Vineyard by private jet. <laughs> will Rob Gronkowski determine how serious the NFL takes its concussion protocol? No, lawyers will. Actually, NBC will determine it and will say, no problem. See you Sunday. Josh McDaniels, Josh Brolin, or Josh Norman? That'd be Josh, the Jericho guy. Actually, that would be Josh Gibson. I like someone who can go deep. What's the most important lesson the Eagles learned from the Falcons from the last Super Bowl? Stupid is as stupid does. Uh, play offense as long as you can, not defense. What's the over-under on the number of Philadelphia sacks for Tom Brady? Same as Brady TD passes. Three. I would say under three. The ball is coming out of there fast. That's the end of that's the end of our first hour, but stay where you are. Coming up in the second half, our Hall of Fame finalist, Isaac Bruce, former coach Eric Mangini, and our own Ron Borges with his State of the Union address. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. And online at SBNationLive.com. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Welcome back to hour number two of the Talk of Fame Network. I'm Clark, along with Rick and Ron, and we're your Hall of Fame guys. You're to dissect the class of 2018 as we count down to camp. In this hour, you're going to hear again from Isaac Bruce, one of three wide receivers among the 15 modern era finalists for the class of 2018, as well as former coach Eric Mangini and our own Ron Borges with his own State of the Union address. I can only imagine what he's got. Uh, before we get there, I saw a pretty interesting story this week about the Saints' Cam Jordan. I think you guys may have seen it, too. Now, I think he's in Minneapolis, Ron. He's probably in there freezing with you. But he's not in the Super Bowl, neither of the Saints. But maybe he should be in the Hall of Fame's class of 2018 after what he did. Now, as, as most people know, Cam Jordan's the top pass rusher in the Saints. He's a Hall of Fame, a Pro Bowl choice, I mean. But... What they might not know is that he's also the Saints nominee for the Walter Payton NFL Man of the Year Award for all of his community work in the New Orleans area. And you know what? He just gave a guy named Lawrence Brooks a pair of tickets to Super Bowl 52. Now, in and of itself, that's not much of a story except for this. Lawrence Brooks is a 108-year-old World War II veteran. Clark, that sounds like a terrific trend. Every player in the NFL should donate two Super Bowl tickets to a veteran. That would dispel any notion that the NFL doesn't care about the military, and I'd rather see tickets dispensed than pregame flyovers. Well, I agree. You know, for all those people who were uh, uh, knocking the players for taking a knee and uh, disrespecting them, I wonder how many people, Donald, how many veterans Donald Trump has sent into the Super Bowl. That would be none. <laughs> there you Zero. go. Well, you know what I love about this story, Goose? I mean, first of all, that there's a 100-year-old survivor of World War II, 108-year-old. Uh, and, and second, the, the Cam Jordan wouldn't forget him. I mean, this guy apparently is a Saints fan, and he's never been to a Super Bowl. So Cam Jordan made sure he could cross that one off his bucket list. Yeah, it would have been nice if the Saints had been in the game, and I, I thought they had a real shot. You know, it's, it's too bad someone didn't think of this eight years ago when the Saints did play in the Super Bowl. Mr. Yeah. Brooks turned 100 that year. That would be really cool. Cam Jordan was sitting in the seat next to him explaining to him what was going on. <laughs> great. Like the, the NFL inside, look, oh, look at that guy giving him the business down there. That's great. <laughs> hey, Ron, you crossing Minnesota winners off your bucket list? Yeah, three or four times. <laughs> My God, it is so winter. Winter is like serious here, man. It does yeah. not play. Well, maybe we should start moving then. You know what? And we will. We're going to move to the next commercial. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. 
This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts Studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Hey, before we go farther, guys, did you see Justin Timberlake is going to do the halftime show? Right, and we know that. But you see who's doing the Super Bowl tailgate party? Sting! Sting is doing it! I mean, what? Something seems a little skew there. Maybe... maybe Ron, maybe they're going to tell us that you too is playing the media party next. <laughs> These guys will do anything for a fee. Double yeah, well, your house. Wow, weird. I tell you what, that's weird. Uh, but you know what's not weird? That's what happened this week to class of 2017 inductee Morton Anderson. He had a street in his hometown of Struer, Denmark, named after him. Really? I mean, that's pretty cool. Actually, it was a street in the city's sports complex, and it's called Morton Anderson Passage. He also had two plaques in his honor placed at the, at the town's uh, city hall. And he had a celebration later that night at Struer Energy Park. That'd be Struer Energy Park, attended by nearly 2,000 people to honor him. Uh, Goose, did, did you get the invite? Ron, anyone get an invite to that party? I didn't. How about you, Goose? Hall of Fame President Dave Baker got the only invite. He's uh. much bigger than us in both size and stature. <laughs> he certainly is. Big country. He was Big there. country, yeah. <laughs> anyway, congratulations, Morton Anderson. And you know what? Congratulations, Vince McMahon. Yeah, I said Vince McMahon, the former XFL boss. He's back in the headlines with what else? The XFL. Only this time it's an XFL that doesn't really look a whole lot like the one you left behind. And, Ron, I don't know really if that's a good thing or a bad thing. Yeah, like to me, playing it straight isn't the way to sell the XFL. You can't out-football the NFL when it comes to football. Uh, but you can't out-gimmick them as long as you don't stray too far away from football. So, to me, I mean, nothing was ever better than the pregame fight. You decide who was going to receive and who was going to kick off. I mean, you got to keep that. And, uh, you know, I would just tune in to watch that alone to get the rest of it. So, uh, uh, yeah, he's got to be a little careful. It's all well and good to say, you know, we're going to be a, a straight football operation. But somebody's already cornered the market on that, so you better have something else going for you. Yeah, how about the uh, opening kickoff, Ron? It wasn't a kickoff. You know, it was like a rugby match with the two sides that went to each other. For the oh, ball. I loved it. Yeah, it was Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable. Anyway, um, Goose, here's my question. Um, when I look at this, I wonder, if it failed then, if the XFL failed then, why with, let's say, CTE concerns, all the stoppages with replay, decreased ratings in the NFL, why should the XFL succeed this time around? Because the XFL was very creative the first time around with cameras in the locker room, cameras in the huddle, cameras on the field. And some of the elements the XFL introduced have been adopted by the NFL. If the XFL can continue to create new ways to watch and enjoy football, it, it could have a place in the sporting calendar. You know, but I do think they're going to have to get some uh, a few name players, something mm -hmm. that didn't happen the first time around. And I'm talking major college names who didn't necessarily have the size or skill to play on Sundays. You know, a Tim Tebow would be an example. Right. And right. if I was Vince McMahon, I'd run out and sign Colin Kaepernick today to a personal services contract. Yeah, I'm with you. And what about Johnny Manziel? I mean, I know they've ruled him out, but I would think he'd be a natural guy, too. Well, if they ruled him out, it's going to be tough to get him back in. <laughs> Not much gets by the boost, man. Uh, oh, no. Yeah, no, I, did, I think Dad. you're right. I mean, look, you know, this is, uh, uh, to me, you sell this as outlaw football, man. This is outlaw football. And we go down there to, you know, those those schools we see on some of these uh, reality shows, you know, in the middle of nowhere, Mississippi, and uh, East Bumdoodle, Kansas, you know, and they got all these guys that were great players, but they, you know, Rob knocked off a 7 11 or whatever they did. They couldn't play for Ohio State teams, as guys like Kurt Warner seemed to prove. And that's, to me, the way to sell it. You know, renegade football. Right, right. 
Well, I've always thought there was a place for another league, Goose, and, and, and that's like a developmental league. I mean, we had Bill Polian on here a couple of years ago. He outlined for us on the show what he thought, and he thought maybe you'd have eight cities, mostly in the southeast, and, and football played um, there as a developmental league. But but this isn't like that. I mean, it's in direct competition for NFL fans, and fans really have walked away from the game for one reason or another, be it the anthem controversy, or length of the game, just general disenchantment. It's going head-to-head with the NFL. Well, no, it's not. It's not going to be the NFL. You're not going to. It's not going to be like the AFL or the, or the USFL, where you're going to sign away the NFL's best players. I think the if the XFL can do a better job of making the game fun and entertaining for fans than the NFL, it can succeed. And I'm guessing the officiating will have a much lower profile uh, in the XFL. And I think re- replay will be trashed. Those will be two giant steps in the right direction for survival. Clark, if they just tra- trashed, uh, trashed the replay, Goose Man would be writing essays about it every week. <laughs> I love, I yeah, love MediaXFL. Me and Rod Smart, he hate me. Goose Man just trashed <laughs> Alberto Riveron. Alberto Riveron, adios. He, he, he just deserved, trashed him. He deserves to be trashed for this last wow. season. Well, hey, Rod, McMahon wants to keep the games at two hours. You saw that. How do you do it right. <laughs> without removing officials from the field? But maybe that's how innovative they're going to be. We'll get rid of them altogether. Well, like Goose said, you know, you have no... Uh, uh, you have no instant replay. Or to me, there's another way to do it. Uh, you do instant replay this way. You show the play on the Jumbotron. You replay. You show a replay on the Jumbotron. And then the fans stand up like in the Roman Coliseum. Thumb down or thumb out. <laughs> you know, People just love to be there to put their thumb down. You know, it'd be great. And, and, and that's the kind of thing. The camera's in the locker room, you know, watching the coaches holler and scream and do their thing at halftime or not. Uh, the kind of things that will make fans think that more involved uh, or the, they're a little more on the inside than they are in the NFL. And there's there's a faster way to play the game, and Ron, who has a young son playing hockey, knows what it is. It's called a running clock. Yes. <laughs> right. Hey, Goose Man, the one thing I will say is where the last time the NFL tried to make uh, the I'm sorry, the XFL tried to make it, it needed a network partner. But when NBC pulled out, remember, it was toast. But this time, to me, it's very different because there's so many options because of streaming that it can show up virtually anywhere at any time and be a success. Yeah, well, of course, I think these games will be streamed, and I wouldn't be surprised if XFL cuts a deal with, with Hulu or Sling. You don't yep. need the big three networks to survive uh, in, in today's uh, marketplace, and the NFL, or excuse me, the uh-huh. NHL and the NBA are proving that. That's the signal that we're going to get something different from one of our big three. That would be Ron Borges, deep in the snow of Minneapolis. Yes, and that's his... State of the Union or State of the NFL Address? Hey, if the president can get airtime to give opinions, so can our Ron Borges. So, Ron, you got airtime. The floor is yours. Well, it's always a pleasure to address this austere group. Austere meaning not that many, you and me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the State of the NFL today is, to quote the sporting philosopher Michael Ray Richardson, simple. The ship be sinking. <laughs> Ratings are down. Fans are down on instant replay. Everyone's down on the catch-no-catch rule. Uh, the players are down with Colin Kaepernick, and Kaepernick's down for the count. But what's up? First, we need to tell head of officials Al Riveron he's not supposed to be adding mistakes with instant replay. He's supposed to fix the mistakes. Jeez, how tough is it? How do we fix our replay problem? We will fix a good portion of our internal length of game problems when we fix that. If it takes five minutes to determine something happened, then it didn't happen. Let it go, bro. So I'd like to announce today that instead of Riveron running replay, we will bring in a rotating cast of 50 guys at bars around the country. Our <laughs> questionable call, and the play goes to them. And the time it takes to down a shot at tequila, they vote. That's it. And the beauty of it is, it's also sponsored content. Let's go to the Jose Cuervo replay booth. 
for 12 fans, 12 turkey replay time. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. We're going to return greatness to the NFL. Our problem with the defenseless receiver issue has to be addressed as well because our fans do not like all this talk of surviving the ground because they know nobody survives, survives the ground. We all end up under the ground. And here's where we're headed there. We will protect defenseless receivers unless they leave their feet. You go airborne, no fly zone. A lot of these helmet-to-helmet contact calls are really as much about a descending receiver bringing his head into the strike area uh, as they are a vicious defender. So cut it out, you knuckleheads. Keep your feet on the ground. Then there's our falling radius. What do we do to change that? Well, something more or less, especially sometimes more is less, especially if the Browns are involved. So we sacrifice Thursday night football and tell our playing partners, sure, it means a lower salary cap. You can go one or two ways. You can have more money or more injury protection, but you can't have both. You're not going to play on Thursday night. Truth is, the less the public sees some of our teams, the better. So we opt to make the product scarcer. We went from having them begging for more to pleading for less. That's the Thursday night. And that's the player unrest over socialism. We'll handle that the old-fashioned way. We'll pay off the players. We'll give them a $100 million donation to whatever groups they want and keep them in the locker room until the anthem and flyover are finished. If they want to protest, they'll have to do it in the bathroom. Then give them the cash and let them fight over it. And we do what we always do. Walk away. Go to the bank. Thank you, Mr. President. Speaking of Jose Cuervo, you don't have any there with you, do you? <laughs> I can use some. That was terrific. Thanks, Ron. Up next is Eric Mangini with thoughts on Tom Brady, the Patriots, and the Hall of Fame. This is the Talk of Fame Network. This is Albert Lewis, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Our next guest not only knows plenty about the Patriots and every other NFL team for that matter, but he's also the only coach I know who ever had a cameo on The Sopranos. Honest, I mean, he did. He had a cameo. Anyway, I'm talking about Eric Mangini who once was the Patriots defensive coordinator and knows plenty about New England, Tom Brady, and some of these Hall of Fame candidates we've been talking about. Eric, it's been a long time, but it's great to speak with you again. Oh, it's great to be on tonight, too. Good, good to talk to all you guys. Thank you. Um, well, first off, another Super Bowl, another Super Bowl of Tom Brady. You've been on his side, and you've been on the other side trying to defeat him. What makes the guy so extraordinary? I mean, able to do things at 40 that others, you know, 10 or 20 years younger can't. Well, one of the things I think that's different about him than, than a lot of quarterbacks is he, he's unselfish. And what I mean by that is, is he's, he's going to go to what's open. He's going to take what's there. He's not worried about his numbers. He's not worried about anybody else's numbers. And if it's if it's a function of running the ball fifty times, he's he's happy to to do that as well. To me, that's that's one of the defining things about him. And then the second thing is he's so good at gathering pre-snap information. And in playing against Tom, you'd say over and over again, if he knows, it goes. And then what that meant is it's going to the right place. So if you just line up in a stagnant defense and tell him what the coverage is. Then you really, you really have no chance. It's, it's too hard because he's gonna get it to the right place, and every play that you have has that coverage beater built into it, you know, to some degree. So it's, it's those two things to me that a lot of quarterbacks, as they get more and more successful, have a hard time, you know, emulating. 
Eric, it sounds like he should never lose a game. How do you beat Brady? <laughs> well, he, we're, beat we're pretty Patriots? close to that. How, how, do you, how do you beat him? How do you beat Brady? How do you beat Brady? How do you beat the Patriots? Well, I think the main thing that you have to do is, is you, you've got to make them make post-snap decisions. And you've got to, you know, we used to talk to the young guys all the time, because typically the biggest tell on a defense is, is the youngest player. And you got to, you got to move around. You, you got to force them and force Tom to make the decision after the snap. That makes it cloudy and that changes uh, the amount of time that, that they have to, to complete uh, a successful play. And then you've got to be able to have a, a second pitch. So if you're doing the same thing throughout the first half, throughout the first half, they're going to be able to go into the locker room and say, okay, this is, this is what the game is. I think that's one of the things they do really well. This, this is what it is, and this is what we're going to do. And you need to have something else to come back at them with in the second half. Otherwise, it, it just catches up to you. Well, we were talking to Ray Lewis last week, uh, and he said that the interesting thing, he's had a lot of success against uh, Brady. He was 2-1 against him in the playoffs, and, and uh, the one game they lost was on a botched field goal, and then he, he was 1-4 in regulation against him, but even all those uh, games, with the exception of one of them, was a one-score game. So the thing he said was, uh, in his opinion, Brady hasn't changed his kind. I can't do his voice, but you had that Barry White voice. But, you know, Barry hasn't changed his concepts in 18 years, but you can't beat him if you don't understand his concepts. Uh, so do you agree that that's basically true? And if so, what the hell is his concept? <laughs> yeah, you, 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 there are core things that they're going to do, and it's not like the New England concepts are so much different than anybody else's concepts. And it's you know certain ways that you beat each coverage. You beat cover three or you beat cover two. And, you know, understanding, you know, understanding where the beaters are is going to tell you where he's going to go with the ball. But those Baltimore defenses that Ray was on had really good pass rushers, had multiple looks, had a lot of disguise, had guys in the secondary that could create problems. Those guys weren't lined up in traditional positions usually. They were walking around, and, and you know, a guy like Ed Reed could get back in the middle of the field and be up in the line of scrimmage to, to start with, and he would, he would jump certain things. There was an inherent unpredictability in those Baltimore defenses based on the personnel. Then they did a really good job of disguising and bringing exotics, and that, that's a problem. Those, those those defenses and that personnel, they, they were a problem for the way that New England wants to do things. Well, we have a follow-up. You know, Lewis claimed in this same interview with us that the, the beauty of Brady is that he's running the game, not the coaches on the, on the sidelines. And to beat him, you've got you to gotta run the game, or you've got to have a guy on your side defensively running the game you know, on the field. Uh, it, it, of course, no surprise, that was Ray Lewis. Um, how much truth do you think there is to that? I guess he was basically sort of saying you can't just play the call, just sort of statically playing the call, and, because he'll figure you out. Well, where someone, where there's value in having someone who can run the game defensively is that the other thing they do really well is if they find a weakness, so if something works, let's say it's even an inside dive player, a really uh, you know, traditional direct run, and it hits you for five, they're going to hurry up at the line of scrimmage, and they're going to hit you for five again. And then they're going to hit you for five again because they don't want to give you a chance to correct the problem that they found. It's the same thing when they get you in a certain substituted defense. So at least if you have a, a defensive player 
that everybody can look to and calm things down during the week of practice. You can say, look, if they go in that no huddle, you know, in, in, in spurts, this is what we want to do on the second play. So it allows you, instead of it coming in from the coordinator, it allows that guy to say, okay, hey, we're changing to this. So that's mm-hmm. where the value of a, a strong on the field presence who can kind of say, okay, everybody relax. This is what we're doing. Helps. Mm-hmm. We're speaking with Eric Mangini on the Talk of Fame Network, and you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at Talk of Fame Net. And, Eric, as you know, it's not only Super Bowl week, it's Hall of Fame week, and there are some Hall of Fame finalists up for the class of 2018 that we'd like to ask you about. And I'll start with the guy that Ron is presenting to the board this weekend, and that's cornerback Ty Law, uh, someone you, you know very well and saw daily when you were the Pats DB coach. Um, what makes him Hall of Fame worthy? Ty, Ty it was, first of all, I, what a, a great guy to coach. You know, it took a little while for me to, to get to understand Ty's personality, but nothing bothered Ty. He had the ability to, you know, if he was get, if he got beat, you know, he always asked for guys to have short memories. Ty was Ty was built that way, and Ty had the the best ability on the stem of a route. So routes broken down where you jam at the line of scrimmage, and then the vertical part of the route is the stem. Ty's ability to widen wide receivers on the stem of routes was the best that I've ever coached. You know, then he had the ability to, uh, or, or he had instincts, just just natural uh, instincts that was unique, and he had ball skills. So that's another part of it. Some guys can bat the balls down. Ty could convert those mistakes into interceptions. So his ability on the width of routes, his, his instincts and, and understanding where the ball was going to go, and then his ability to convert it to interceptions, to me, makes him unique. Ty was a willing run support player. Ty took on wide receivers and, and would shed blockers. There was a physicalness to him that a lot of guys with his numbers in terms of interceptions don't have. Eric, would you have picked up your first Super Bowl ring in 2001 without Ty Law and Otis Smith? No, I, I think everybody was, was pivotal in that. But what Ty allowed us to do Otis had a, a very specific skill set. He he was really physical at the line of scrimmage. He had good ball skills too, but he was physical at the line of scrimmage and he could go match up against those big wide receivers. Now what you wanted to be able to do is double or work some help to Otis aside to allow him to be as physical as possible. Now, without a guy like Ty, who you could put on the other side and isolate, you wouldn't have been able we wouldn't have been able to do what we did with Otis. And the nice thing about those guys is we could actually, you know, people assume that we were going to do one thing after we showed it for a while, so then we could adjust and give Ty some help and allow him to take some chances. But it was Ty's ability to match up against the best receiver or the receiver that we chose that then allowed us to push some help to Otis and maximize his skill set, which is being really physical. Um. You know, we talked earlier about the middle of the field, how the middle of the field is so often day, open today when it wasn't 10 years ago. Uh, and obviously the Patriots are really taking advantage of that over and over again. Um, what needs to be done or what, or, or is there anything that can be done uh, to sort of reverse some of that process? Do they need to go back and maybe make that 
bump rule uh, the the area ten yards again instead of five or seven yards at least. So they have to do something to even the score a little bit between offense and defense. You know, as a defensive coach, you'd love for them to do that, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. Everybody, everybody enjoys high-scoring games. Everybody enjoys, you know, lots of lots of fireworks and you know, cannons going off and all that, all the things that go with scoring. I don't, I don't think people want to go back in, in the other direction where you get the, you know, the twelve tens or the you know fourteen ten games. It's just not, it's not as exciting. So would I like them to? Do I think that it could be a lot more physical line scrimmage, especially considering how big wide receivers are now, and they should be able to get off the line of scrimmage. They should be able to deal with, with bump coverage even more effectively than they were when the rule first went in. Yeah, I think they should, but uh, they're not going to move back in that direction, I don't think. Eric Mangini. Thanks for the time, and let's stay in touch. We, we miss talking to you, really do. Thank you. All right, guys. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Eric. Thank That's you. it. That was former coach Eric Mangini. Up next is Hall of Fame finalist Isaac Bruce. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Hi, this is Herschel Walker, and you're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. Well, former wide receiver Isaac Bruce needs no introduction, except he may have to have one to some Hall of Fame voters. I mean, there's been so much talk this week of Owens versus Moss and Moss versus Owens, you almost forget that Isaac Bruce is also a finalist at wide receiver. So we thought we'd replay an interview we did with him last month where he made a case for himself and you know what he made a really good one so this then is isaac bruce well um fortunately it was in houston last year um you know my wife is from houston so uh, my in-laws were there and um you know honestly my wife and i we took in a houston Rockets game and the next day i think um you know i was just like any other husband i had to go to the mall and you know and do some shopping and and uh and uh and things of that nature but you know it it rarely crossed my mind i just had had to remember that i had to be back in my room at 3 p.m so um you know there was no anxiety or anything like that and and i really just enjoyed the moment it was a fun time for me isaac while you didn't make it kurt warner did so how long before it took you to speed dial him and what in your mind made him a hall of famer well, I think he called me before I could finish dialing his number. And, um, you know, it's funny. Um, uh, I've, I've seen Marshall, or Orlando, and, and now Kurt. Uh, you know, Kurt was a great competitor. I mean, I think he came in and, you know, uh, when he joined the huddle, I mean, he had about four or five other leaders that were already in the huddle, so that made it comfortable for him and uh, took full advantage of it. I mean, I, I saw the guy grow from, you know, just being a guy who was – you know, a backup to MVP of the league uh, in a matter of weeks. So it was fun. And um, uh, he did a great job last year at, at, at Canton uh, with his speech. How tough is it for you, uh, Isaac, to know you're in a winner-take-all battle right now with a former teammate, uh, Tory Holt, as well as the other guys on, on the list? Not tough at all, man. I think, um, you know, uh, I think I had more anxiety about being drafted than, uh, you know, being selected for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. Um, you know, as far as, you know, being 
being drafted, there's, there's such a great unknown. Um, you don't know what team you'll end up, where you'll get picked, or uh, what position coach or what head coach you'll be play, playing for. So, and, and plus you're younger. I was 21 when that happened. Um, you know, just talking about this situation, it's, it's totally different to me because, you know, the, the book is closed. And, um, you know, I've done everything I, that I could do on the field, so to speak. And, you know, my numbers are my numbers. Uh, my organizational impact is it's what it is. Um, you know, the, the people that I disciple, they're, you know, they're either in their career or finished now. And, you know, all, all the values and the life lessons that I learned from playing football, you know, I, you know, I can channel it towards other things now. So I don't, I don't consider this hard at all. I don't consider it being, um, you know, something that I lose sleep over or high anxiety. But it, it's truly humbling in, in all aspects of it. We're speaking with former Rams great Isaac Bruce, who's now one of the 27 semifinalists for the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And we're doing it on the Talk of Fame Network. And you can find us on the web at talkoffamenetwork.com or on Twitter at, at talkoffamenet. And Isaac, I, I, I know you might be reluctant to do this. and Maybe we've asked you this before, but I'm going to ask it again anyway. Um, there's a lot of competition at your position for Canton and a lot of really elite competition so if you were to stand in front of voters today and and you had to convince them that you isaac bruce are the most worthy candidate at that position what would you tell them okay i appreciate you giving me this opportunity um (laughs) you know uh i I think i've envisioned this moment and if i'm ever called on to kind of help the person presenting me uh, you know this is kind of what i'd say um, you know, I just say, you know, speak the facts. And, you know, we talk about values and commitment, integrity, and courage, and respect and excellence. You know, I, I like to say that I, I like to have and live a life of excellency, a spirit of excellence. So you have to mention my numbers and, you know, my ranking when I retired, um, you know, versus those of current Hall of Fame wide receivers. Uh, second all-time in, in receiving yards, fifth, and and in uh, and, and catches, I believe, and touchdowns, I was sixth. Um, second person ever to reach 15,000 career receiving yards. So what I like to do, I like to put my hands over the goat and kind of just go down from there. So, you know, second person ever to do that. Every time I touch the football in my career, I average 15 yards a catch which is a first down and a half. Um, career totals, um, over 1,000 yards catches, catches uh, 15,000 yards receiving. And I like to say 101 catches with an asterisk because I only finished with 91, but when you factor in the Super Bowl game-winning touchdown, I normally give myself 10 for that. It's the dream that every wide receiver has, who's ever played in the league that's the way he wanted to end the Super Bowl. And, and I was fortunate, along with two other guys like, like Santonio Holmes and, and uh, Plexico Barris, to, to end the game that way. And I think mine was a little bit more dramatic because I had a catch and run. And, um, you know, just my organizational impact. Um, my numbers retired by the, Saint, by the Los Angeles St. Louis Rams. Um, I discipled their receivers and their defensive backs, guys like Torrey Hope, Eddie Kennison. Uh, Kevin Curtis, Azakim, uh, defensive backs like Dre Bly, Tajay Allen, 
uh, Dexter McLeon. I, you know, I kind of, I like to say when I see them, I raised you guys. You know, I raised you, and it's, it's a running joke between us. But I served the Rams well for 14 seasons, man. And, and um, you know, I, I got two team MVPs, and when I finished with the 49ers, I finished as their MVP. And, um, you know, I played hard, played hard when it didn't matter, and I shined when it did matter. So um, the consistency is there. Um, you know, if I had to vote myself and I had to vote for a wide receiver, these are the things, this would be my criteria for these guys. I mean, just how long you did what you did, the impact that you left, uh, your numbers, obviously, and, you know, your uh, National Football League impact. So I don't think this story can be mentioned within within the 100 years and my name not come up. So um, those, are the, those are the cues that I would give the person presenting me. And um, I, just, I just leave it at that. Isaac, during your career as a player, did you measure yourself against Randy Moss and Terrell Owens? And do you now measure yourself against those two as a Hall of Fame candidate? Well, you know what? I, I would think it to be unwise to do that. You know, um, I'm a baseball fan. And um, fortunately, I was in St. Louis and I watched Albert Pujols develop. Um, it, it's kind of funny because uh, where he's playing now and, and the role that he's playing now for the Angels, you know, they, he tend to get the question, do you have to compare yourself or play to the level of Mike Trout? And it's, it's kind of baffling because, you know, before either of those two guys that you mentioned were in the league, I was averaging, you know, 100 catches, 1,500 yards receiving, 10 touchdowns. So, I mean, I wasn't comparing myself. I, I mean, I don't think, um, you know, I needed to do that. And as it is right now, I don't, you know, I never lumped myself with, with those other guys. I think that, you know, my gift, um, it was developed. I was able to show it uh, consistently for a long time. Um, and, and, I mean, I was, a com- I was a composite of other guys that I'd learned from just watching and, and some of the things that I could do myself. So um, I, I, didn't, I didn't think it was wise for me to compare myself to other players uh, from that sense. But, you know, always, I always felt like I didn't have to. You know, it's, it's interesting, uh, Isaac, to talk to you and to listen to you uh, because we all know that there have been other guys in your situation um, ranting and raving when they don't get in and it's the greatest injustice in the history of sports and so forth and so on. And it's politics and, and all of that. Uh, you've been through that disappointment. You, you haven't taken that position. You know, you made your case very strongly today without talking about anybody else. When you hear those kinds of things from, from guys uh, on the brink of the Hall of Fame, what do you think, without, without saying a lot of any single person, but, but what do you think, and does it bother you that, that some guys have to look at it that way? No, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me. Um, if I could, if I had to sit down and make their case for them, I think I could. Um, I could do it for them. I think other people could make or, or you know, put my case out there better than I could. I mean, because I just looked at it first and foremost as me being a football player. And what does a football player do? You run, you block, you tackle. I did all of those things. So um, I, I looked at it as part of my job description. Um, so was catching football. So was uh, being the example, being the leader. That was that was my job description. So w- when things weren't going as well as they could be going, I was never one to really, you know, 
quote-unquote shoot myself in the foot or shoot my teammates' feet, you know, because these are the same guys that I'm going to need. You know, if we're down in the game, I'm going to need them. Um, if we're up in the game, these are the people I'm going to celebrate with. So, I mean, I, you mentioned earlier I graduated last year, which I did, and I said the exact same thing. I went from a semifinalist to being actually in the room. So I was excited about that, man. And, and at the same time, it was humbling. I mean, I got an opportunity to go to the luncheon, and I saw all of these guys from Andre Reed to Art Monk, and I was excited about seeing these guys, man, because, you know, obviously being selected is a part of my dream. So um, just being able to be scrutinized, to have my body of work in front of uh, the guys who uh, are, are doing the selection, hey, man, it was humbling, man. I had no qualms about it. Hey, Isaac, uh, speaking of uh, scrutiny, I want you to scrutinize something for me. It's something that okay. bothers me in today's game. It's the catch rule. What do you think of it, okay. and how would you change it? Oh, good question, man. Um, I'll just start by saying that I believe it was a catch by the tight end uh, versus Pittsburgh, um, uh, particularly from the era in which I played. I think that you know what I saw happen with my naked eye was that I saw a receiver catch a football, control it with his hands, his knee being on the ground. Now, it takes two feet in our league to have a completed catch or one knee or one elbow or one butt. So when I saw the tight end catch, catch the football, he made a football move and a, and a reach across the line. To me, it's over. The ball crossed the line, uh, the end line of the, touch, of the touchdown, and it's, it's a touchdown to me. But the rule states that finishing the catch if the ball is bobbled, is not a catch. So right. um, what I would do to change it, uh, interesting. There are some penalties that trump other penalties in our in our game. So, you know, unsportsmanlike or, or, or roughing the passer, it trumps, you know, maybe a, a, a false start or a, an offsides by a defensive player. So uh, things like that. that I, would, I would have that move, what we saw Sunday, trump the rule that we have in the game because what happens if a, if a guy's running the football and dives through the air and you know he lands out of bound but the ball crosses the plane it's a touchdown I saw no difference in that Sunday and I think um, I think the young man was robbed of a touchdown personally I think a lot of people in Pittsburgh would agree with you Isaac Isaac yeah. Bruce thanks so much for the time and best of luck with the Hall of Fame vote alright guys thanks for having me Thanks, you Isaac. got it. Thanks, Isaac. That was Hall of Fame semifinalist Isaac Bruce coming up. It's a two-minute drill. You're listening to the Talk of Fame Network. Support for this podcast comes from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center. With over 75 years of experience, their doctors treat more rare cancers in a single day than many physicians see in a lifetime. To become a patient, visit makingcancerhistory.com. This is the Talk of Fame Network on SB Nation Radio. From the O'Reilly Auto Parts studios, here's Clark Judge, Rick Goslin, and Ron Borges. One last time, Ronnie. Would you poke Tony Carrente? Wake him up. There we go. That's the signal to Ron to the two-minute drill. So, Gooseman, let's get going. Let's say the MVP of the Super Bowl is not, will not, and cannot be Tom Brady. Then who is it? Tom Brady's parents. Minneapolis gets to show off its new stadium to the world this weekend. So what's the best stadium in the NFL? Anywhere Tom Brady plays. Oh, stop it. Well, you get a new, get a new horse. The only one, the one they're building in Vegas, they're going to have a strip club on the club level. 
Provo viewership was up 25% from a year ago, which begs the question, why? Americans have too much time on their hands. It's simple. I'm assuming a cold snap across the country. All the NFL coaching vacancies have been filled. Who made the best hire? Patriots. Kept Bill Belichick. Arizona with Steve Wilkes. Defensive coaches win. The offensive coaches get fired. Speaking of defensive coaches, does Jeff Fisher ever get back into NFL coaching? Only if the XFL wants him. That's on my look, who's saying it'll be 60 at the end of February. NFL owners are not in need of our members running their teams. The Titans hired Matt LaFleur as their new offensive coordinator. Who would you rather have on your side at game time, Matt LaFleur or Guy LaFleur? Please, Goose. Guy. Vive les habitants! Only one LaFleur was Guy Ray, and that was Guy. A little flower. Danny Amendola, Danny Ainge, or Danny DeVito? Danny Fouts. Danny Glover, because he's the only one who's a lethal weapon. You're Vince McMahon. Name your top four cities for XFL franchises. Manhattan, Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx. Birmingham, San Antonio, Columbus, Ohio, and Portland, Oregon. Like Wee Willie Keeler, hit them where they ain't. <laughs> Champ Bailey, Tony Gonzalez, and Ed Reed are all on the ballot for the first time for the class of 2019. Stack them by order of Hall of Fame worthiness. Reed, Gonzalez, Bailey. Ed Reed, Ed Reed, followed by Ed Reed, Ed Reed, Gonzalez, and Bailey. But not deal. <laughs> <laughs> We'd like to thank Brian Urlacher, Isaac Bruce, Brown Wolf, and Eric Mangini for joining us, you for listening to us, and Robert Harris Jr. for producing us. If you'd like to listen to this or any podcast, just go to our website, btalkoffamenetwork.com, or find us on iTunes or your podcast app. Otherwise, tune in next week to this station at this time. We'll be here, and we hope you will be too.